Welcome everyone to Season 2, Episode 4 of the On Path Podcast. In this episode, I speak with John Rooney, Group Vice President, Industry Marketing at Oracle. John is a natural storyteller with a gift for language, and this really comes through in the conversation we have, in the anecdotes and analogies he shares. So how did an English major who almost minored in both music and philosophy pivot to an incredibly successful career in enterprise software? It was by no means an obvious path for John to sell highly technical products to highly technical people. And as you might have guessed, there were twists and turns along the way, including surviving the first dot-com boom. John has worked at such iconic organizations as Microsoft, Splunk, New Relic, and now Oracle. With over two decades of experience in a space that's transformed not only itself several times over, but the way large businesses operate, John really has an amazing perspective and wealth of experiences to share. This is not one to miss. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And as always, thank you for listening. Hey, John, welcome to the On Path podcast. Vijay, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the offer and looking forward to chatting. So I'm excited to talk to you today about your life and career journey starting as an English major, becoming a product manager, product marketer, and now a marketing executive. This podcast is all about stories. Uh, and so I thought it might be interesting to start on your six-week crash course in C after graduating university. Tell us how that happened. Yeah, sure. It, uh, it seems like it was a long time ago. I was a literature major as an undergraduate, and I had had expected, you know, really from high school on, to go into academia, become an English professor, you know, wear uh, a tweed jacket with elbow pads and talk about uh, Virginia Woolf and Kafka and all that good stuff. And really, that's what I'd focused on as an undergraduate. I like to say I, I was an English major, and I almost had my minor in philosophy and almost had a minor in music. So I was prepared for enterprise software without question coming out. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, at some, at some point during the process, I was really fortunate. There were a few faculty members in, in the English department at Penn at the time, uh, Vicky Mahaffey was one of them, uh, Jean-Michel Rabatay, and uh, another one was Jim English, well-named. He was the chair, chair of the graduate department, who were really honest with us at, about like, hey, you know, the, the job prospects for the humanities, for, you know, for <clears throat> tenure-track positions in humanities, they're kind of rough right now. And this is, you know, 20 plus years ago. And they're like, be really sure if you want to do it. And I was in this honors program, and I really was kind of nerdy about it. And uh, really, the advice from one of my professors was, do anything for a year or two. And if you can't live without it, come back, but really try to explore other possibilities. A lot of my friends at undergraduate at the time were either going to law school or med school, investment banking, because I had a lot of friends who were Wharton undergraduate, and then consulting was sort of the catch-all for if you didn't know what you wanted to do. And so I ended up in consulting at Accenture back when it was still Anderson Consulting. And it was fascinating. I remember there were like three of us in my start group from Penn uh, myself, a uh, religious studies major and a music major. And I cannot tell you what a good coder, her name is Chantel, the, the, the music major was. Like she picked it up, she picked up the syntax, she picked up, like she had such a knack for it. But the rest of us, it was six weeks of training, both in the local office, I was in the Philadelphia office at the time, and you know they all shipped us off to this campus outside Chicago <clears throat> in uh, St. Charles, Illinois. And we wore suits every day. And every day we learned how to code an accent. It was called Accent on C. It was client server development. And it was literally like first day was like, 
this is a hard drive and this is what RAM is. And like three and a half weeks later, we're, we're learning about pointers. It was such a crash course. Um, you know, this is years before the code academies and year, 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 uh, years before that kind of stuff. And it was great. And I remember the funny thing about it was it was less about the specific coding principles. It was more about building up uh, sort of a confidence and a set of skills to learn things super quickly. You know, so I remember, you know, essentially learning how to do client server development in a Windows development environment. And the first big role I was staffed on was entirely uh, Unix environment. And I was like, what's Unix? And they're like, well, you're gonna have to figure that out. And it was just like, you pick up the book <laughs> and you work really late. And yeah, so it's kind of a, I'll, I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit. It's been a hack for me for years in hiring product marketers. You, you talk to anybody in the industry, it's really hard to find good product marketers. And there's the traditional path of computer science background to engineer, to product manager, to product marketing. But I actually think a huge hack for that is consultants, particularly on the implementation side, sort of the Accenture and Deloitte people, because it's a lot of, you know, it's like uh, karate kid paint the fence. It's a lot of the same motions that can be applied to product marketing. And a lot of it is just like, are you resilient and um, sort of fearless about, I don't know this, but I'm going to figure this out. And that was really kind of the principles there. Yeah. So I'm curious about one aspect. Did the suits help with learning to code? The suits were actually, you know, it was a really important discipline point because, you know, I was still 21 when I started that job. So we were pretty young. And I think what they wanted to do was instill a sense of professionalism. So it didn't just feel like college plus plus because we were surrounded. I mean, it, it was so hierarchical uh, instead of command and control. So I, you know, I remember a year later, I was 23 and I was one of the instructors, you know, so it, it, so it didn't sort of blend into just sort of like, you know, kids partying, all of that was certainly part of it. I think the suits were helpful to remind a reminder, like you're not in college anymore. People are paying for your time. You need to conduct yourself in a certain way. And there was even sort of these kind of meta lessons where, you know, you're on this campus in suburban Illinois. I mean, there were hundreds, I mean, at least hundreds, maybe even a couple thousand people at, at various times there all around the world that were all, you know, if not under 30, I mean, maybe even under 25. And, uh, and so they wanted to make sure that, yes, there was a bar on campus. We could go and socialize. That was certainly part of professional life, but you had to get up and, you know, 830 or whatever it was the next morning, you're in a suit and you're back in front of a, you know, <laughs> an IDE figuring out how to declare a variable. Yeah, 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 got it. So, so I've heard you describe the consistent thread throughout your career as always selling technical products to technical users. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just described the six weeks process where it was a deep dive into, into tech. And I'm curious, have there been times where you felt like an outsider? And if so, how did you overcome those challenges? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, I mean, I'll even go back to the first real project I was rolled onto. It was, you know, when Verizon was still called Bell Atlantic, that's how long ago it was. And, uh, and it was a Unix environment. And I remember I had to do something. It was like a, it was a point of sale or some sort of reporting tool. But I remember I had to embed SQL and HTML. And they're like, well, you're going to have to VI that file. And I was like, what's VI? And, and, and you just sort of, you get these head shakes. But, you know, you build a thick skin around it. And you're like, all right, I'm going to go get it. And I remember I got the O'Reilly there was a cheat sheet that had like a lemur on it that talked to you, that told you all about VI. And so it built a certain resilience. And I think that resilience is important, especially in enterprise software. Um, being completely out of my depth and, and unprepared technology wise. 
you know, again, like not knowing how to VI a file and realizing that was part of my job. And I think it, it built a certain resilience. And the other thing it realized, and I go back to sort of why I think I've been a big proponent of the humanities as, as a training, like learning VI was not as hard as reading James Joyce. Like, you know, it was like one of those things that like you just figure it out. And, you know, and this is before YouTube videos. I mean, I remember I had a giant hardback book that, that taught me web, you know, till I'd look up things for, for web development. So it sort of built just a kind of resilience and a confidence of like, hey, you can figure this stuff out. None of this stuff is rocket science. And at the end of the day, even rocket science isn't really rocket science. And so <laughs> that became important for me as I moved on in my career. After Anderson or after Accenture, I worked at a few startups and, you know, that was during the dot-com bust and I was doing all sorts of crazy roles, you know, I was, you know, when you're a product manager and often, I think at least once or twice, I was like the first product manager in, you're doing product management stuff and creating requirements and managing backlog, but you're also acting as an SE, you're also writing test scripts, you're also SSH, you know, doing systems engineering and SSHing into production boxes, and you just learn. And I was really fortunate. There, there were a, a bunch of people I worked with early on. Brant Strand, I got to give a, a big shout out to a guy by the name of Brant Strand, who's awesome, who I've worked with twice in my career, who just sat down and taught me. And I think that's the biggest thing. If you don't come from a traditional sort of undergraduate technical training, I, I talk do this a lot with folks who are kind of interested in product marketing and they think there's some insurmountable technical barrier. And I, I don't like just ask questions and learn and, and, and put the time in and you can figure it all out. And that was all, those are all lessons that I internalized really early on. Yeah. When you come across people maybe nowadays who are taking their first steps into tech and maybe feeling a bit apprehensive, that's really your message for them that it's not rock and science, you can figure it out especially with all the resources out there. Yeah, I mean, there's so many resources. And, 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 and there's also sort of, I'll take something as basic as web development because that was the first thing I sort of had my arms around, you know, 15, 20 years ago. That has gotten both easier and harder. There are a million frameworks to abstract stuff away, but you can't just view source and know what's going on in a web page anymore. So, but the, the key is like, there's so many resources out there and there's so much stuff for free. And even throughout my career, I mean, at New Relic, uh, we would have, you know, again, very technical product for technical people. I made sure that even though, you know, I was, you know, senior and running the org, I still got my hands dirty and I knew how to deploy an agent. And, you know, one of the last things we did, we all hands-on and like, we wrote a little Lambda function and deployed it in AWS. And, you know, I don't have a knack for code. I understand development, software development. I understand, I don't have a knack for it. Like they're just people. So I, you know, my job is I'm littered with syntax errors and all this stuff that drives me nuts, but to force yourself to do it, I think it helps you, it builds your confidence, but it also makes you more useful and helps you when it comes down to like the messaging and, and kind of delivering the stuff that you're responsible for in product marketing, you know what you're talking about because you've, you've done the thing. And do you organize it for basically the entire team so that everybody keeps in touch with it at, at a regular cadence? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that because product marketing in particular, there's this balance between comm skills and messaging and marketing acumen, but also a degree of domain expertise and, and, and sort of tech, technical mastery, people tend to sort of lean one way or the other. And I've always tried to be really balanced. Like we're going to go in there and we're going to deploy some code or, or, or do something very technical and hands-on. And then we're also going to go through some messaging exercises and you have to sort of build, build both muscles, you know? So let's talk about this period right after Anderson Consulting. 
Yep. So as you mentioned, it was at the, at the dot-com peak. You move out to San Francisco. Paint a picture for us. What was the mood like? Yeah, I caught the very, very, very tail end of it. It was like right, you know, it's like getting to the bar right before they turn on the lights. So I moved out here um, in the summer of 2000. And I did the thing that you do when you're in your early 20s where I gave up my apartment, I quit my job, I got rid of all my furniture. I moved out here with what I could get on the plane, basically. And, uh, you know, it was the tail end of the first dot-com boom, which I heard about a little bit in college. I think the, the, the Netscape IPO was sort of a big watershed moment. I think, you know, there's an old generation that doesn't remember that, who just, you know, everything is sort of in terms of Facebook. You know, th there was a world before the social network movie, as great as that is. Um, <laughs> and, and so there was still a lot of buzzing of that. And then, you know, because of a couple of my best friends from college were out here, one of my best friends was essentially um, helping dot-com startups go public. So mm -hmm. there was just a vibe of like, even if you're in finance uh, and I remember like he would, you know, they'd have, they're called tombstones, which are these little, um, you know, in the iBanking, I guess they're like out of trophies. Um, and so they have tombstones for <laughs> like, morbid, but, yeah, yeah for, for like Ask Jeeves and stuff. And so all that stuff was sort of in the air and it was pervasive and it felt really exciting. I mean, being in consulting was amazing, especially for someone like me and my background. Uh, I would, I'll always be grateful for the training that I got at, at Accenture and the fact that it's been a proxy for me in saying, okay, if I know people who've come out of Accenture, people who've come out of Deloitte, they know how to work. They know how to write stuff down. They know how to structure their thoughts. They know how to quickly move up. Because, you know, the, the one interesting thing you learn in consulting, which I think has helped me in my career, is a lot of times at companies or big companies, there's a sort of information is power and people almost want to sort of hoard their role. And that's where you run into like problems of transparency and silos and it gets really gnarly. And that's where like the people part of the work gets hard. In consulting, the thing you learn is you want to you want to get good at something so you can hand it off to, to the next person, you know, kind of behind you and you can move up the food chain. So uh, it instills in you this notion of transparency, but also methodology. Like you need to wrap stuff up in a bow in a recipe that like a not very good cook can follow. So you can go do something bigger. And that was really helpful for me going to a bunch of startups, you know, when I sort of moved out here and it was weird because even though I worked at a bunch of startups, I think, is that right? All three startups I worked for former Accenture people who hired me because they knew I knew how to work. I mean, it was just one of those things. I didn't know any of them personally, but it was just one of those things that like, it was just pattern matching, right? And they're just like, okay, we know you went to St. Charles. We know, you know, you, 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 know, you worked on the following big projects and you did X, Y, and Z. Cool, we, we, we can throw you at a problem. And not only we solve the problem, but you can help solve the problem in a way to bring other people along, which I think is a big part of kind of the ethos that I took on early on. So, you know, I worked at three startups over five years. All of them are gone. Some are more forgettable than others. Two of them had E as the first letter in their name, which kind of dates the, uh, you know, work for a company <laughs> yeah. called E Frenzy before they changed their name to <laughs> Nextdoor Network, which is different than the Nextdoor.com that we all know now. Uh, I worked for a company called Ecast, which is great. Learned a lot of great lessons there. That probably the most uh, notable thing about that company is, do you remember the whole notion of the long tail, Chris Anderson at Wired wrote that book about the long tail and digital goods and the idea that, and it was, it, I'm trying to think what year this would have been, 07, 08, but it was, it was sort of like a, it was a big business concept, <clears throat> kind of early in digital transformation, kind of around web 2.0 that 
the sum of the market potential for the non-hits, like the long tail of distribution, is greater than the fat head. And you can capitalize it if essentially storage and search costs were zero, right? So that was back in the day when, you know, everyone thought of Amazon primarily as a bookstore and the idea of no matter how big the books, you know, if you're at the Strand in New York, like Amazon's going to have more books. It doesn't make, you know, financial sense or economic sense for any bookstore to order copies and have in physical inventory of every book in the world. But yeah. in digital goods, like, you know, you could have forever. Anyway, that ECAS, which is a digital downloading jukebox, that was, we had this pitch. We were always running out of money. I, I, th I think I mentioned, I got here in the summer of 2000. By the fall, things were kind of creaky. And by, and by the spring of 2001, it was huge layoffs. And so B2B was back to Boston and B2C was back to Chicago. Like the city just <laughs> cleared out. Um, yeah. Anyone who's been here since 2010 or 11, it's hard. Like you could just drive and park in North Beach. And so it was an interesting time. I kind of bounced around at these startups, but they were always kind of running out of money. And I think for years, it was like every quarter there'd be layoff. And so you try to figure out if you're going to survive the layoff. And But it was fun and it was an exciting it was an exciting time. But anyway, yeah, so they come to Ecast. Our big pitch, we were always running out of money, was I, I think at the time, so it was like a digital downloading jukebox where you go to a bar. The very first one was, I think Kennedy's is gone now. It's a bar in North Beach. It was, it's an uh, Indian restaurant slash Irish bar. I can't say enough good things about it. Anyway, they, I think they were the first customer ever. And the idea was we had, it was like a hard drive that you installed. It was connected via broadband. And then you could either play music off the hard drive or you can do request and essentially download, which now it seems like archaic, but it was really a big deal at the time. Anyway, we would have we had something like thirty thousand albums in in our catalog, and we would say what percentage of them would get played at least once on a quarterly basis. And people would say, I don't know, five percent, six percent, fifteen percent. It was like ninety one percent, and so and we would watch that stuff in real time. So it was like you'd, you'd actually get like the real time billboard chart of what was playing in bars and so we use that as, as a way to kind of pitch the company and the opportunity anyway we one of the during one of our, our kind of bouncing around the city we ended up in the wired building and chris anderson was in the building and i think our ceo just sort of pitched him and he validated that concept with amazon and netflix was still was just getting started and mailing out dvds and so anyway like that's the most notable thing about that startup i worked in a bunch of startups realized i've gotten to a certain point but i was i was starting to hit a ceiling because um, I'd gotten technical training, but I didn't really get much business training. I didn't know how to do discounted cash flow. Like there were just a lot of concepts I didn't understand. And so I went back to business school. And I don't know if this is as common as it is now. I don't see it as much in a lot of the younger folks who have worked for me. I'm trying to think, I, I can count on one hand the number of people I know that have left in their kind of mid to late 20s to go back to business school. Um, and I, I could, I, it may be an anomaly in my experience, but that's what I did. I went back to business school and that kind of closed that first chapter, but it was really fun here and weird. This is when South of Market was really gnarly. We were at 10th and Mission when we first got there and man, there, there was just some, some, some real gnarliness down there and then stuff would close. And so I remember there was a company called Petopia. Everyone makes fun of pets.com, but, but imagine being the second player in that market. And the second player in that market was a company called Petopia. And they had, uh, there weren't that many places to go to get lunch down in South Market then. And one of the places, I think it was a Mexican place, uh, we would walk past the Petopia office and they had like a giant, absurd bird cage. Like it was completely like the misallocation of VC funds. 
and I remember they closed it down, but they left the birdcage for a while. So there, it was, <laughs> it was like this, these remains, it was like a very surreal thing, but it was, it was a yeah. fun time. And it was also a fun time in my career, in my life. Um, but it was very, very different city. When I started coming back down here and, and when I moved back down here uh, and a few years ago, it, it uh, a lot of stuff felt completely different from the, the period I'd, I'd first lived here. Yeah, yeah. After that period, you, you went to Texas to do your MBA. And I know after that, you joined Microsoft and were working on what was then known as Windows Azure. Yeah. I'm curious to hear, what were the expectations of Azure then? Was it expected that it was going to become what it is today? Well, so, you know, it was really interesting. I thought I was going to go back and do startups. And, and one of the reasons I went to business school in Austin was that there was a VC community down there and Austin Ventures and Jeffner. And I, I worked for a guy by the name of Bill Wood, who's awesome. He's amazing. He's like the guru. And uh, he had founded Austin Ventures and he had a, a sort of family fund or, or some, a, a fund where he was he was essentially the GP. And I, I worked with him and portfolio companies and kind of helped out. And I, I told him, I was like, I don't want to be a VC. I'm not a finance person. I just want to know what you guys care about. Because I was on the other side of like, oh, the board wants X or, you know, is the board going to like this and layoffs? And I didn't, you know, it sort of felt like the weather that you, you wouldn't understand what would sort of come in. And all of a sudden, like your two friends who sat across the cube for you, like were gone. And so I worked with him. And so I learned about cap tables and I learned about liquidity preferences and all the stuff that are sort of, you know, before Brad Feld was really writing his books and now everyone knows all that stuff. I learned it working with him. And then I remember asking him kind of flat out, I was like, you know, cause he, he did a lot of early stage kind of seed series, a series B investments. I remember asking, him, I was like, Hey, if I were um, part of a founding team, would I survive a B round of funding? He said, no, you wouldn't. And I was like, okay, why not? He's like, cause you need to go see scale. You need to go see something work at scale. Otherwise, any company with any modicum of success would outgrow you before you knew it. Um, and there was just too much risk, you know, as being a board member on that. And I really took that to heart. And so I did my internship in business school at Microsoft when then went back there in full time and spent the vast majority of my time in what used to be called the server and tools business. It's now called enterprise and cloud, but it was really like when I was there, it was a lot of like VMware and Oracle compete. It was the big engine it was sort of the unheralded big engine of the business we always used to joke like the more money you made for microsoft the worst offices you had so xbox which at the time which is like a giant sinkhole of you know they obviously it's done hugely successful but it was in the investment period for xbox and like online services they had really great offices and we were in like 1987 era office park or, or you know like cubicle land but yeah like that was a part of the business that was still on premises and was all about it was two sides of the business. There was selling largely SQL Server and Windows Server to big IT and you know big enterprises and through the channel and service providers and all that kind of stuff. And then there was the side of the business that I ended up in, which was on the developer side, which was more about adoption. So don't monetize developers, get them loving your stack. And you know that was in the days of you know, Visual Studio and, you know, this, and that makes me feel like I'm a thousand years old, but, you know, most large enterprises, when you start to think about kind of what their tech stack was, you would ask, well, is it, is it uh, an IBM shop? Is it a Microsoft shop or a .NET shop? Is it a, you know, a Java shop? And so we were all about getting developers to, you know, make them happy and get them productive using all the Microsoft stack. And that was intersecting with really the explosion and rise of open source. 
in open source technologies. And I'm, I'm going to date myself again by using the term Web 2.0 twice in a podcast, which is probably <laughs> the first time that, t that that term has been used even once in a podcast over the last decade, uh, maybe ever in the history of podcasts. But, you know, all of a sudden you started seeing the improvements in JavaScript and, you know, WordPress came around. So all of a sudden PHP became this huge technology in the web. And so there was a shift. There really was an existential crisis around Microsoft, around kind of staying true to the traditional Windows ecosystem, .NET, all the way through to, you know, embracing more open source. And, you know, I feel unbelievably lucky to have been there when I was there because, you know, the book and the whole concept around the innovator's dilemma is, is real. They're kind of famously only a handful of large companies that successfully kind of navigated the transition from on-premises to cloud. I mean, it, it's been a, a ditch that a lot of companies have sort of died in. And Microsoft was one of them. Adobe was another one. And and it was very much kind of, you know, before Satya Nadella was CEO, he moved over to run server and tools. And, you know, we were a $22 billion business before Azure took off just in selling, you know, essentially licenses for, for Windows Server and SQL Server and, and technology like that. And there was a real courage. And, and I think the notion that Amazon right in our backyard, who there was this notion of, oh yeah, they're, they're online retailer, they're booksellers, they're a completely different business than ours. Like they show up at AWS and just sort of shock the world. I think there was competitive pressure from that. And then there was also the notion that as the first party Microsoft services Back then it was called Hotmail and the messaging, you know, the MSN messenger. And uh, it was before uh, Bing, but essentially all the search technology, they realized the the need to scale that in a way that racking and stacking servers in the old way didn't work. And so there were there was all this sort of investment in like, okay, what does the cloud mean? And what does it look like? And I'm unbelievably grateful to be there to sort of see that switch to like, all right, we have this $22 billion business. We're going to start to starve that to feed this nascent business around the cloud, which has components that are completely different from how the traditional business worked. One of them is in the old Microsoft, and it's still a model I think there is, is a useful framing where you essentially give stuff away to developers to monetize to big IT. And I think there's still a lot of businesses that work that way, but there was the notion of, no, no, we need to get you know the transition point, the transaction point or the buyer in a lot of cases are developers and they're gonna wanna do they're going to want to use open source. And, you know, I can't give enough credit to Scott Guthrie, who's now, you know, Scott Guthrie, one of the smartest and also nicest people in tech. He was an early proponent of stuff that now feels like it might be a little either kind of silly or trivial. People might not understand like why it mattered, but even having PHP to be able to run on, you know, an IIS web server was important because it, it, it brought, Microsoft to where developers and what the technologies they cared about were. It was a big shift in mindset. So Scott was really the person under Satya who kind of led that transformation of Azure. And I remember because there was debate, uh, it was still called Windows Azure. I was there when we launched. It was one of the last things I did before I left for Splunk. Um, we launched a bunch of stuff in like the spring and summer of 2012. One of them was to be able to host Linux um, VMs, right? So you can run Linux in Windows Azure and people's brains broke. It was like uh, cats and dogs are friends and all like it was just this sort of chaotic thing. But I would say the that experience and that sort of mindset and, and I think the foresight that people like Scott and Satya had and how they led the organization, hugely, hugely influential for me. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, it sounds like a really transformative time. Actually, interestingly, I was working at a marketing agency in San Francisco, McCann World Group. They were the agency of record for Microsoft at the time. Yep. And my my whole, like the group I was part of, we were all Flash developers. And they, they flew us up to, to Redmond to, to train us on Silverlight. And it was really a great advocacy program. Yeah, and that, I, that's what I, that was one of the big things I did for a while. I was the... I mean, we had the product, we had product manager titles, but if you talk to anyone at the time, it was sort of like a shifting of everyone who was, had a product manager title, we were mainly product marketers. Anyone had a program manager title, they were mainly product managers and the engineering managers were essentially doing program managers. So it was like all over the place. But yeah, I was, that, that was a lot of what I was focused on. Essentially, we knew, again, it's so weird because it, it feels like a million years ago and anyone who's kind of come up since the really Steve Jobs and the iPhone kind of eliminated the, the browser plugin and rich internet applications, that kind of stuff. But it was a big deal. It was the idea of how do you target the browser? Everyone knew the browser was the more important, like kind of the, the portable OS for everybody. How do you target the browser with more interaction and, and more, more capabilities from a software standpoint? And so the early days, it was Flash and Flex and, you know, Silverlight, you know, we had I don't know, 6 million .NET developers out there in the world, and none of them could really target the browser, and they didn't want to learn ActionScript, and they didn't want to learn Flash. And so early on, it was how do we give them an opportunity to build cool stuff, and that's really what was kind of the driver behind Silverlight. And that was, you know, Scott was Scott Guthrie was sort of ASP.NET and then Silverlight before Azure. And, you know, I, I was very lucky. I was part of a marketing team that really kind of followed Scott around and worked on the things that Scott was focused on. And that, you know, that was, that was an important thing of how do you, it was really kind of the early days of, of I think, a, a massive company like Microsoft adjusting to uh, much more bottoms up developer led trends and consumer trends around, okay, you know, I'll, a third time I'll use Web 2.0, Web 2.0 is changing the expectations for everybody, consumers, businesses, just people in general, general, what they could do in a browser. So after Microsoft, I mean, you were there for five years, uh, you moved to, uh, you moved to Splunk and that, if I understand correctly, is where you first got into marketing. So why marketing then? Yeah. And I think this is where kind of the ambiguity of how Microsoft was structured at the time, because technically, you know, my title was product manager, although I reported into marketing, but, um, there at Microsoft, there was also sort of a split notion of the centralized marketing and then there was marketing that lived in the BGs, the business groups. So I was sort of in the marketing that rolled into the business groups. So I was sort of doing marketing-y type stuff, but in all fairness, and my experience at Microsoft was amazing and I learned a ton, it's, you know, it's a very engineering-led organization. And so it, it was a different thing. My experience at Splunk was amazing. I wish I could say it was a genius and I knew it was going to do what it was going to do. I thought I was going to go do... I, you know, I was thinking back to my background and what I'd done at startups and, you know, working for, you know, interning for Bill Wood in Austin and saying, okay, now it's time for me to go do an early stage startup. So I was like hanging out, hanging out at Techstars. I'd sort of uh, finagled my way my last couple of years at Microsoft and sort of working with startups. And I knew a lot of the evangelists who were working in the startup ecosystems, especially around Azure. So I kind of was thinking that was going to be my entree to go do something super early. And I just kind of stumbled a, a couple of a guy I used to work with at Microsoft who I was friends with had, had gone to Splunk. Splunk had opened a Seattle office. It's, it's so funny. Now you think about unicorns and startups and you hear like Stripe have a $65 billion valuation and they're still private. And, you know, you hear about companies do a hundred and $200 million rounds. 
But Splunk only took like 40, I think it was 42 or 45 million in venture funding in total. And the last round of funding, one of the in investors, a company called Ignition, and up in Seattle and the Seattle tech ecosystem, which is amazing and awesome and even way more amazing and, and, and built out than it was when I, when I was there. there. There are two kind of anchor venture capital firms. There's Ignition Ventures, uh, which is a lot of former Microsoft people and executives who are sort of there, uh, and Madrona Ventures, which does as well. And so when I, when I went to leave Microsoft and thinking I was going to do something early stage, you know, you go and you you do the circuit. You go meet with folks at Madrona and you go meet with folks at Ignition. And Ignition had invested heavily in Splunk. And one of the things that they had kind of two things that they were looking at towards the end of kind of Splunk's ramp to exit. And again, companies would go public then at 110 million in revenue. Which you look now, it's like, no, you know, I, I mean, who knows how, you know, look at Databricks revenue or, you know, who knows what's going on with with Stripe or, you know, any of those the companies that are so huge and still private. But they, they really, there were two contingencies. One, they wanted to make sure that the Splunk was working and, and more compatible with the Windows ecosystem. And then the second one was they wanted to build a developer platform because they saw as an IT tool, IT tools are great, but they're easy to rip and replace. And, you know, to be a platform, have other companies building on you, but also to be more intimately woven into an, an organization's backend systems and, you know, other tools, which just make you more valuable. So I was brought in to be the developer marketing person at a company that didn't really understand developers. And this was before, I think we've all fallen in love and, you know, lots of credit goes to like Stephen O'Grady at Red Monk for developers, the new key make, kingmakers. But there was a sense of like, Developers before, like they're interesting, but they were a bad market because they never had money. Developers are always like the people that showed up at dinner without their wallet and IT would always have to cover the bill. And so like, eh, you know, you're never going to build that big of a business when you're just focused on developers. And that was really the thinking there. And so I was kind of brought in as the kind of voice for developers at a company that at the time was almost entirely focused on IT operations, as they should have been. I would say the the kind of beachhead set of use cases that really built the business. And and so it's, it's Splunk, as you mentioned, you were in developer marketing, but uh, you had several different roles. How did those internal moves come about? Were, did, the, did they just like surface up as organic discussions or did you very proactively go after them? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say there was sort of a plan or uh, a, a roadmap to do that. And it's kind of what you hope in a hyper growth environment, like stuff, just good stuff just happened. And the company kept growing and opportunities just sort of showed up. And it may feel like really hollow advice of like, do good things and work hard and good stuff will come to you. And that's kind of what happened with me. You know, I came in as a developer marketing person. There wasn't much of a developer motion. I remember I, I was brought in to initially launch a set of SDKs. And this is when like people at Splunk, um, you know, really good, successful people, again, just the market was different. They didn't really know the value of an SDK. I remember having a conversation with, with a sales leaders, like, why aren't we charging for these? Because we would have the download numbers and be like, oh, we did 20,000 downloads of the Java SDK. It's like, why we could charge a little bit for these. I was like, no, 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 you don't charge for these. And, and so, uh, but we had a couple of really large enterprise customers when Splunk was starting to rapidly increase the the sort of average deal size and part of the average deal size has become more strategic across the organization and having a platform let them do that so that all of a sudden a couple of big wins with big customers that kind of raised the profile of the work that i was doing and you know there was a, a team in, in seattle at the time of developers and product managers that i was working with and we were all really tight around it 
Um, and then the second thing that happened, which again is just sort of crazy dumb luck, was the emergence of DevOps as being like a thing in enterprise software. And uh, you know, it was sort of the this logical extension of agile development brought about by kind of the the changes that the cloud brought, right? The idea of you don't have to wait to rack and stack servers and get a credit card and go and just deploy stuff. And and so at the time, Splunk would kind of grow out of IT, but there, it was we were still kind of finding our way and doing the thing that I think is fundamental to product marketing, which is what are the, how do you do pattern recognition about what problems you solve for people, especially when you have a general purpose platform that can do lots of different things. And what you don't want to get into is like, oh, what does your product do? It's like, well, what do you want it to do, right? And there's a way to describe Splunk, you know, especially in the early days, is like an event-based real-time ingestion and indexing engine for se semi-structured textual data. Like, you know, like, like, like basically, which is describing Coca-Cola as caramel-colored soda water. Like, technically, that's true, but like, nobody understood what that meant. Like, what problems do you solve? And then we started realizing, hey... This, this, there's no better way to, to fix and find problems in production environments. And where I got sort of lucky as the developer marketing guy was we just kind of stumbled in as being this really critical DevOps tool. And I was talking to a customer, again, there's no substitution for talking to customers. And we were almost kind of fishing for insights on how people are using the product all the time. So when you meet a customer, you'd ask, like, oh, what data sources are you putting in to Splunk? And so you'd hear, oh, I'm putting Apache access logs, I'm putting DNS logs, I'm putting MySQL logs. And he was saying, I'm putting, uh, I'm putting, pulling in logs from the Jenkins server, you know, as an automated build service. And I was like, oh, so you're actually using Splunk in a pre-production environment and kind of had him tease it out. And that kind of created this momentum behind Splunk for DevOps. And for a lot of years, I think Splunk still co-sponsors the state of DevOps report with Puppet. Splunk kind of predate, predated, obviously, the terminology behind DevOps, but we, we got kind of swept up in a wave with Ansible and Puppet and Chef and all these other tools at the time that were like the cutting edge things to do when you want to start moving towards continuous integration and continuous delivery and all the stuff and DevOps, you know, cultural principles. And so that was really lucky for me. And then all of a sudden that helped me. We had sort of a transition. The other thing that happens in businesses that are growing really fast, especially like, like Splunk, you have transitions, people coming in and out of the company. And it was just sort of like, I had an opportunity to be sort of next up at a certain point and run the team that I was on. So I went from being like a peer and then, you know, th then uh, a couple a couple years later, we had another transition, we had a CMO transition and, you know, had an opportunity to sort of, hey, let's rethink how we, we structure all of product marketing because there was no centralized product marketing leader. There were, we, you know, we were always structured, which I think is the right way to structure in general by buying center. Or, you know, so we had a security team, we had an IT team. We had later, we had, we had sort of a platform team. Later, we had sort of an IoT um, and kind of emerging business team, but there was no one who sat above that. And then I had the opportunity to kind of run the whole gig. But yeah, there was no plan. Uh, and as I look back, I didn't ask for either, like I, I didn't really thought of, I didn't really even think of asking for either promo. In both cases, I got sort of tapped on the shoulder. And and I, I don't I don't want people to take that for granted. I think in a lot of cases, people should ask for things. And I think I was very lucky and maybe my experience was even unusual in that it felt the closest to a duocracy than I, that, that I'd probably been, up, been around up to that point in my career. But yeah, that was it. Like in both cases, I remember the first promo, you know, I was interim for months and months, but the first promo, I didn't even know it was coming. I was having like my annual review with my manager and she was saying, Hey, just so you know, I'm, I'm going on sabbatical. I want you to look after the team while I'm gone. And like, 
okay. I, I, I didn't expect that at all. So that's how stuff happens. And so in the, in the like six, seven years you were there, how many different companies did it feel like you worked at? Because I imagine it was very different from when you started. Oh yeah. Every year, basically it was a different company. We were lucky in the early days in that we had a lot of stability. It was a, it was a big shift, especially from Microsoft, in that it was a sales sales and marketing driven organization. The CEO at the time, Godfrey Sullivan, who you know sort of a legend, who was CEO of Hyperion when they got bought by Oracle. He was at Autodesk for a while. He was at Apple back in the '90s. He sort of had this maniacal focus on what do the customers care about? How do we solve their problems? How do we scale our go to market? And while, you know, it was a technical product for technical people, it wasn't about, you know, because we, we were very much contrasting ourselves with other big data players at the time, the sort of the cloud eras and the Horton works and the map bars of the world. You remember there was all this sort of attempt to educate everybody on uh, Hadoop and Pig and Hive and uh, MapReduce. And like, if only everyone understood MapReduce, the, the value of this would be, you know, evident. And, and you know, I, and I'll, I'll kind of credit Tom Schodorf and Godfrey Sullivan and the late Steve Somer and the early kind of go-to-market leaders at Splunk who were there, you know, Steve hired me for zigging when everyone else was zagging. Everyone else was zagging on like, look how great the tech is. Let me tell you all about MapReduce. Let me tell you all about, you know, distributed batch storage. And we were all focused on solving customer problems and, and running everything through a customer lens. So that created some stability, but we had a ton of, you know, change in terms of product leadership. I think we we had... I don't know how many heads of product when I was there. And then the other thing that happened is the market started catching up to us. And all, you know, we, we went from in the early days doing, it was before product-led growth was a thing. It was a term. And again, it'll feel archaic because it was, you know, people downloading the software, but it was really much about, it was really all about helping practitioners solve a problem in such a way that they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And the sales function was almost like, an inbound motion. People just needed a bigger license. You, you download a fully functioning version of Splunk and you'd solve this problem that you couldn't figure out how to do before because you're able to correlate you know, all these logs. You're saying, I need more. I need to be able to eat more of this data. Let me go and do that. We start to shift from that. You know, The problem with that is that nobody has a budget item for that. Log in, you know, before, you know, there are all these reasons from a, from a technology standpoint, from a computer science standpoint, why this changed, but logs were garbage. You know, they were unreadable, they were expensive to store, like they were waste for the most part. And so nobody had a, a, a line item in their budget for it. So there was a, a lot of the first mo notion, motion of the company. And, and I, you know, attribute a lot of that, most of that success to the people that were there before I got there was even kind of getting a foothold and like, hey, this is a problem we're solving and this is going to change your business. And then all of a sudden we started you know, the market started catching up to us a little bit we, as we were getting bigger. And then we started moving into more defined categories, right? You know, security is a big one. When I, when I first got to Splunk, there was a lot of discussion around, should we even get into security? Because, you know, you can't dabble in security. I, I get I get, I get, get pinged by recruiters all the time because I was at Splunk and, and I was like, I'm not a security person. I was there when there was a discussion of should Splunk even get in there? And uh, and because we don't want to dabble and we had people would come from ArcSight and other places who knew what that market looked like. And those buyers were so specific and, and the stack and the ecosystem was so specific. And the company invested and brought in experts and brought in uh, leaders and practitioners from that field. 
And all of a sudden we are in, you know, we're in the upper right and the magic quadrant for SIM, which is a defined category with defined budget and our sales motion is totally different. Our go to market motion is totally different. We're going to different conferences. We're having different conversations. And I think that happened kind of every year. I mean, when I joined Splunk, there were about 400 people in the company. I want to say there were less than a hundred quota carrying uh, reps when I, when I joined. And so in a lot of cases, especially, you know, in the early days when I was a developer marketing person and somebody was, you know, talking to a deal or they wanted to look at something on the dev platform or in a pre-production environment, they would just call me. Like I would just kind of join the call. And then all of a sudden we had to start scaling the business. I think that scaling thing was so interesting because there's an inflection point when like the Herculean efforts of any one individual could only cause problems, can't really help anything. And it's the sort of shift from like cowboy get it done time at startups, which is super valuable and super great to like, nope, this has to be able to scale and be repeatable. And seeing that transition just on a go-to-market side was fascinating. I remember, you know, when I, when I joined, I mentioned when I joined, there was, I think, 80 quota carriers. When I left my last sales kickoff, we had 1,200 quota carriers. Half of them had been at the company for less than a year. And so, you know, my team, we were responsible for enabling those folks and creating that content and creating those sales plays. And like, there were no sales plays involved. Like it was just, you know, be smart and be resourceful and get it done on the products. Amazing. Seeing how that, that transition materialized in individual teams and what did, you know, how could I contribute to that? And what, how did I help that from a, how did the teams that I was leading help that from a product marketing standpoint was was amazing to see. It was nuts, but it was great. Yeah. So you really got to live and experience the go-to-market skill over that six, seven-year period. Yeah. And then, so after Splunk, you went to New Relic and you joined them at a much more mature stage. Tell us a bit about your role there as, you know, leading both product and solutions marketing. Yeah, actually. So between, you know, so I'd done Splunk for almost seven years and you know, it was amazing. And there were just, you know, there's always, as you move up, you know, towards the end, I was VP of product marketing. There's always sort of that, that, that sense of, okay, have you been at a place too long? You have a lot of regime changes. You know, it's like when you get closer to the surface of the water, the storms are, you know, you're more susceptible to weather conditions. And I just sort of felt, I remember like the last big regime change we had from a leadership standpoint, I was like, all right, this is my last regime change. I'm going to go do something else. And I still had this voice in the back of my head of like, startup stuff like i'm gonna go do something super early i was always aware of the fact that i helped i was part of the team that helped scale splunk as a business but i didn't help build it it was built right like the 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 product was largely built the foundation was all there so i, I was like well maybe i want to go build something i want to be part of the you know because it's it, you know it feels like i was there so early but depending on who you talk to i was a latecomer you know, I was a carp I was a I was a carpetbagger by showing up in 2012. I wasn't there in 2008 and 2009 in the bad old years. So I wanted to, to sort of potentially have that experience. And I also was thinking, you know, at the time there was this notion of the logical path in product marketing was product marketing in enterprise software was the path to the CMO because you're talking about technical products and you need to have domain and, and the importance of sort of messaging and positioning and how you manage the analyst community, which is so important in buying cycles. And so I was like, oh, let me kind of take the opportunity to kind of run all the marketing in a smaller place and, and see if I can ride, ride the kind of ride another rocket and find one. So I went to sort of an adjacent space in data science and machine learning. I, so I ran marketing for about nine months at a startup called Domino Data Lab. Really smart company, really smart folks who work there. It all come from Bridgewater and sort of the hedge fund world and so they're practitioners. 
and was there for about nine months and, 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 and enjoyed it. There was stuff I did, but I also learned a lot about myself. One, it was a little early. That market is still kind of congealing and maturing and everything was sort of cowboy. It wasn't about scale. It was just about getting stuff done and figuring stuff out and, you know, burning the ships behind you. And then the other thing I realized is I really am. A, I love product marketing. I love being a product marketing leader. I didn't really feel like it didn't feel supernatural. It didn't feel like this is what I wanted to do in terms of running all of marketing. So the stuff yeah. that was product marketing related, you know, analyst relations and messaging and category creation and enablement, all that stuff, you know, felt like I like digging into that stuff. The other stuff, like I don't have a knack for mops. I don't have a knack for demand and growth. And I remember we had a, we had a big event in New York back when people still did events and you know, I've done keynotes. I've done dozens of keynotes in my time. And so when I think at events, it's like, all right, I, my team has to run the sessions and I have to do the keynotes. And all of a sudden when you're running marketing, I had, to, I had to care where the food was. I had to make sure that the speakers had the right, like all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm responsible for everything. This isn't sort of my gig. So New Relic came calling. I was really familiar with New Relic um, from my time at Splunk. That market changed a lot. So in the early days, they were partners of Splunk. Um, they did APM and they collected a certain type of data. Uh, we were doing log analytics. It was sort of a, you know, chocolate and peanut butter. Here's how they can both kind of work together. As that market changed and evolved, it became more competitive. And then, you know, uh, when I was running product marketing, I also had competitive intelligence. So like we own the battle card on New Relic. So it's just like that, 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 uh, that relationship evolved. So I knew, New Relic really well. I love the space. One of the things in product marketing that's hard to balance is there is a functional notion of the role, particularly from a messaging standpoint and from a comm standpoint and how to, how to sort of run the function. But then there's also domain stuff. Like, do you, are you credible? And it's, there, there's still all these challenges in enterprise software where like, if you're not product and you're in marketing, you're just like an advertising person. Like, what do you do? You set up dinners, like, you know, you hand out t-shirts. And so it's really hard from a credibility standpoint when you don't, when you're not super deep on the space. And like my experience at Domino, like I just, I didn't know data science. I didn't really know what the tech stack looked like. I didn't know what that looked, I, I'd never done that role. Um, when I was at startups as a product manager, I did, I, I, I did sysadmin roles. I, 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 you know, I would do manual grepping of logs. So all that stuff I had, I had an appreciation for. Data science, I didn't. So I think one of the things that was appealing to me at at New Relic is like I know the space. I knew I knew all the Gartner analysts. I you know talked to them. Like I knew like I felt like I could hit the ground running and contribute from a domain standpoint. And you know New Relic was going through a transformation as the whole market was maturing from what used to be a set of best in class tools. You know you had Splunk for logging, Splunk and and then Sumo Logic and a company called Logly. There were all these sort of like logging vendors and. Then you had APM, whether you're talking about Dynatrace or AppDynamics, especially before they were bought by Cisco and New Relic and other other sort of APM vendors. And then you had infrastructure monitoring. Some of it had been around forever, like you know, like HP tools. And then you had Datadog show up as being cloud native infrastructure monitoring. That had shifted to being kind of full platforms and people realizing that now that the market is kind of referred to as observability, but it, it's moved to essentially like having a really great fork to having a really comprehensive Swiss army knife. And I think um, part of why, you know, the thing about New Relic has had all this strength and all of this kind of brand awareness in especially SaaS based APM. What about all the other stuff? And so that was really how the opportunity was presented to me. Yeah. And so actually you're starting a, a new position at one of the, the really iconic companies in enterprise software. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, yeah. So I really love the experience I had at, at New Relic and love the team there. There, you know, it was an awesome product marketing team. It was great working with a lot of folks. But I had an opportunity to join Oracle. So I am joining my first day. Well, I don't know when this is going to air, but my first day is tomorrow. Whenever at some point, Oracle running kind of industry marketing, and I think that is, you know, if you think about Oracle, you think about a company as pervasive. I mentioned earlier with the observability market and New Relic and Splunk and Datadog, where you know it felt like there was a lot of surface area to the platform. You not only needed to know about logs, you need to know about APM, you need to know about dashboard creation, you need to know about distributed tracing and the difference between tail-based and head-based distributed tracing. Well, nobody has a broader and, and wider surface area in terms of portfolio than Oracle, right? So you have cloud technology and database technology, but you also have hospitality point of sale systems. And so... You know, I'm really excited to go and meet the team and join the team and be part of the acceleration of growth of Oracle as you, as we start to say, uh, how do you tell, a, a you know, an all-up story for an industry? So that is sort of the orientation, and I'll credit that a lot to the leaders that I mentioned earlier at Splunk, Tom Shortorf, Godfrey Sullivan, Steve Somer, who are always focused on the customer and their problem. Then the last thing you do is map your solution to it. And so if you're in banking, if you're in healthcare, if you're an industrial, like you, you care and you think, you know, it's the old, like no one cares about the shovel. They just want the hole in the ground. And that's really the opportunity that as I think about it, I mean, again, I'll, I'll start tomorrow. They mailed me a laptop and that's, a, I, I have a water bottle, but um, you know, the, the folks I've met there have been great. The opportunity is great. And I'm super excited to be a part of it. And I imagine this is, probably the first time in your 20 plus years that you'll be doing a remote onboarding. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely going to be weird. I haven't met anyone there. That's not true. Uh, CMO Ariel Kelman, who'd come from AWS, I'd met him when he was at AWS. He came to speak to the marketing team at Splunk, but yeah, everyone else has been remote and I'm hoping we are, you know, getting towards the tail end of whatever the situation is. We can start seeing people again. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's also a return to scale that I haven't had at this stage in my career, right? When I left Splunk, it was about 5,000 people. New Relic was, you know, a few, two, two to 3,000 people, you know, uh, you know, Oracle's well into six figures. And that's going to be a recalibration that I'm, I'm really excited about. And just as we start to wrap up here, on that point, I'm curious if you were talking to a recent graduate, let's say they're a couple of years out of university, and they had the option to either go to an early stage startup or one of these organizations really that's at a, at a whole different scale, what would you recommend as a starting point for their career in tech? I mean, I think my bias, I think because I came from sort of a big company is, you know, unless you have an opportunity to be on the ground floor, something amazing, you know, you're at Stanford and you're joining Google in 1996 or whatever it was. I, I think there's a lot of value to going to a big company and having a structure and seeing stuff done at scale and it's very much like building a muscle around things that you don't even necessarily understand it at first, but it'll come into play later. But then I would say, you know, my advice, especially early on is alternate, you know, move back and forth. It's been really valuable in my career, you know, in that I've done 60 person startups and I've done 100,000 person enterprises and I've done hyper growth. Again, it's, I think it's kind of continue to exercise the same muscles that were taught, you know, sort of built out at, at Accenture of adaptability and and shifting the schedule because there, there's a lot of stuff that like you know again i i've identified kind of my own strengths and and what's interesting to me and where what i think you know i can do that can help an organization is much more around that 
sort of scale and pattern recognition and methodology and building a system. And, you know, I always think about moving things away from being artisanal to being a system, but that's not the right thing for early stage startups. And I've had conversations with early stage startups. That was a little bit of my experience at Domino, like, you know, forget scale, like just get something that works, just make something that happen, you know? And I think that, that to be able to flip between the two of them, you know, I would have, I'd have those experiences, like just get it done in the moment, you'll live to fight the next day versus I remember kind of a lot of what I learned, especially at Microsoft around, you know, at Microsoft, there was this notion of anything smaller than a hundred million dollar business, you were wasting shareholder time. Like you, you would insult, you know, you'd come to any, any you know, and, and I think that's such a crazy thing to get your head around. But if you can contextualize it and move back and forth, so um, you know, and again, unless you feel like you, you have a great in, there are, I, there are kajillion startups. There, you know, it's a great cultural experience. There, there are more startups than there are good businesses, and you know, there's a reason why the failure rate is what it is. It's a great experience to have, especially early on. But I also think anchoring and being somewhere where like you can be trained and have resources and every, everywhere big where you can go and just like you know at. I'm so old, but man, at, at Accenture, we used to have uh, Lotus Notes, which is, and you would, you would, you'd, you'd, have, you'd like roll into a new industry. I remember like rolling into pharmaceuticals and like downloading the Lotus Notes and, and spending the weekend reading through, like, I don't know, how does a drug get patented? Like, I don't, you just learn it and then show up the next day and go. And like the, that, that kind of thing, I think having those resources can be really supportive and I don't know, it's yeah. helped me at least. Yeah, yeah, and I think you've just had such an incredible path between these early stage startups and also working at these really iconic large tech companies. So thank you so much for uh, sharing these stories with us today. It's really, really been incredible to talk. Oh yeah, no, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is great and hope folks uh, can get a little something out of it. As always, thank you very much for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate a rating and review in your podcast app. Thank you and see you next time.